You're listening to Vinyl Tap, inside the music industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my own music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk with some of the biggest movers, shakers and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax and welcome to Vinyl Tap. In part two of this special, Jane Gazzo joins me again on Vinyl Tap, only this time we're kind of interviewing each other. We discuss everything from growing up as migrant kids in the Melbourne music scene to what our favourite venues of all time are, and, as usual, Jane pulls no punches when we discuss her thoughts about music broadcasting in this city, a subject you should know about having been in the business for almost 25 years. Well, here we are, part two of Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry. And this morning, I'm also joined by Jane Gasso, who's been on the show before. Good morning, Welcome, Michael. Jane. Congratulations on the success of it's, Vinyl it's Tap. It's doing really well, actually. I'm, I'm so stoked for you and just the calibre of guests you've managed to secure over mm. the last couple of months. It's been really eye-opening to find out so many things about some of our contemporaries mm. and people that I've known and loved in the industry for such a long time but not knowing their backstory. So yeah. hats off, Michael. Thank You've done you. something really and wonderful. And there's more coming too, some surprises in my next series. Are you allowed to drop hints? I'm going to do a Living Legend series, I think. That's a great idea. Yeah, people like uh, Terry Blamey. Of course. Kylie's long-term manager. Yes, dear friend of mine. Your good friend Mark Opitz. Yes. I've got to put Mark Opitz in there. <laughs> Um, people like Sebastian Chase ah, yes. from MGM, who's been a stalwart of the business. So there's people of that caliber. FIFA Riccobono, mm-hmm. who I've is interviewed f- FIFA at length first, for the Australian Music Bowl. First yeah. female CEO of a, of a record label in this country. Um, if maybe maybe still. even the world for that matter. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah, running Alberts, you know, ACDCs. Get her um, to tell. Label. Get her to tell her, you, you about the. First time she ever met Bon Scott. Oh no, she's told me because I used to <laughs> when I ran Mushroom, we had Alberts on Is Mushroom. That right? Yeah, I went and got it. I said I had Olivia Newton John, Kylie Minogue, and I think there's one piece missing: ACDC, Olivia, uh-huh. Kylie, ACDC. You know the triangle. The, the triumph. So I had to go. I said to Roger Grierson, who was my boss at the time, I said, "If we're going to do this properly, let's get ACDC." So we went and did a deal with um, FIFA and Alberts, and I love FIFA. But so yeah, the next series is going to be Living Legends. I look forward to that. It's going to be great. So Jane, we're talking about Melbourne. We are talking about Melbourne. Melbourne music scene and and, and our place in it, you know, and both Italian um, Italians. Yeah. I'm actually Italian born. You're of a, from Italian parents, of course. Correct. Migrants, of course. Yeah. What was it like growing up as an Italian girl and then trying to navigate your way through the music industry in Melbourne? And well, we're talking, and you've been around for a while, you know, you've been, you know, been involved in music in, in, in various capacities for about, what, 25, 28 years now? Ish. Ish. Yes. ish <laughs> not giving away ages. My mother's Australian but born of, of, of 
uh, Spanish and, and oh, English I didn't know parentage. That. No, my father's from Sicily, but I hated the name Gazzo growing up. Gazzo. 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 I would have given anything to be a Thompson, <laughs> a McNamara, a McPhee. <laughs> Smith even would have been great. James I Smith. I really didn't like the name Gazzo. I was ashamed of it because growing up in the 80s, I was only one of two Italian girls in my class, okay? The majority of, let's say, 26 girls were white Anglo. There was one Russian-born girl, or well, not her parents were Russian, and there was one Macedonian Greek in mm. my class. Not even a Chinese at that point. I don't no. think the Chinese came until later as far as, you know, my, my little microsm of my primary school. So I felt like, I, def, I mean, I certainly felt like a minority in, in as far as I had a weird woggy surname and the salami sandwiches in the place, oh, in, in, in the playground. I and that. I used to beg my mother to give me Vegemite sandwiches. Just <laughs> let me be like everybody else. Now, of course, I look back at that with really fond affection of because course. I think, well, I was unique. And what area are we talking about? What, what so you... I went to Ivanhoe Girls. Of course primary. you did. And of course you did, Jane. Yeah. That explains did, a lot. Where did you grow up? Preston Reservoir. Uh-huh. I went to Preston Primary. <laughs> I was one of – it wasn't many Italians actually. See, I find that hard to believe because no. Preston and Brunswick. Macedonians. Right. right. It was Macedonians, Aussies and a smattering of Italians. It was primarily a Slavic area. Interesting. Weird, weirdly enough. And interestingly, all my good friends who I still keep in touch with from primary school are all Macedonian and there was this, you know, one Italian – there were Italians, don't get me wrong, but I was one of probably half a dozen at that school. But did you feel because there was more of you or more Europeans uh, that you were, uh, you know, uh, unlike me, I was only one of two Italians? Which is crazy. Yeah. Oh, no, I I kind of um, – I remember um, being darker than everyone else um, and I remember being picked on, you know, as, as kids do. Kids mm. can be awful sometimes and, and brutally honest mm. too. I remember being picked on and you know for my skin color and um but I had my Maso friends would protect me ah. from from the little Aussie kids. <laughs> and and I remember I was saying to my dad, you know, I was upset one afternoon, I got home from school and I said, Look, I'm I'm, I'm they call me Gollywog, you know, and I and I'm really upset. I don't want to go to school anymore. And he said, Look, what you do, next time someone calls you Gollywog, punch him really hard in the nose. And my mum freaked out, don't punch him in the nose. And anyway, I did. The very next day, I punched this guy called Kevin Neverus. I'll never forget his name. <laughs> in the nose and and cracked it. Oh dear! You know, and got in trouble. Of but course. you know what? I never got touched or teased again. That's the ever, thing, isn't it? Ever, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, growing up, uh, growing up Italian was weird because yeah, there, there was a salami sandwiches, but also I, I just felt that culturally I was a bit different to mm. to the people at the school too. Well, yeah, I was going. My, my mother sent me to Sunday school. Yeah, we went, every Sunday. Thank you. So I had to do communion and then later on that. confirmation. And yeah, oh my god, the priests were so like creepy. I, creepy. <laughs> and I, I there was particularly one in the parish that we went to, which was not connected to the school. Uh, and I really got really bad vibes from him and I later found out he was, of course, part of this 
I think we all that had was all exposed. But even that, then, as a young age, I knew there was something really creepy about him. I think we all had a, a priest, you know, in our in our past too. It was in creepy. Our midst, yes, absolutely, always. And then before you got here, I was speaking to Mary Mihalakos about her culture coming from Greek heritage mm. and how a lot of the venues that um, she's worked in were previously either Greek, you know, um, uh, were Greek cinemas in Melbourne, in, in case of Brunswick Ballroom. Um, it used to be a Greek sewing room. <laughs> now, I remember you know, being Italian, I remember going to a movie theatre in Clifton. There was a few movies. The Westgarth was once Italian, the Westgarth Theatre. There was one in Clifton Hill which was the old Greek theatre in Melbourne was obviously old Greek theatre. And that kind of, they turned into, eventually turned into music venues, a lot of them. Can you remember any of that? Like, you know, places that you used to frequent or your parents would frequent, who, which is now part of the music fabric of, of this city? Well, we used to frequent the Abruzzo Club, the which Abruzzo is still there God. to this day. Which one? The one on Ligon Street? The one on Ligon Street. Th- that'd have dinner dances for the sure. Dinner and dancing, yeah. dinner and shows. And it's funny, when I moved to London in the 2000s, that's what I gravitated towards. I would take people, <laughs> all like my ex-Triple J friends, to dinner and shows, <laughs> really walking dinner and shows with the live band playing. We just thought it was Taverna yeah. Chic. We yeah. had a brilliant time. But not so much, no, the venues being owned, no. The Thornbury Theatre, current Thornbury Theatre used to be a reception hall, you know, which is now obviously running and running shows. Mm. But there was quite a few, my parents would love, your dinner dance, you know. Yeah, dinner they'd, and dance. They'd and love it, right? Fun for all the family. But we'd go. We, yeah. As kids, we'd as, go. As so would I. And so there'd be all these terrific bands playing, playing, you know, standard Italian covers. Sometimes, you know, they, you know, they'd bust out into Dean Martin, you know, a bit of Elvis and stuff. But we got a music education from going to those dinner dances. Well, at least I did. Well, it's interesting because I wrote a book on John Farnham in mm. 2015 and through my research, I actually found out that he was an honor- honorary member of the Italian community and by that... John Farnham was. John Farnham was. So when he was mar- managed by Daryl Samble pre, pre-Glen Wheatley, mm. uh, Daryl had him working all the Italian club circuits, all the dinner and dance shows How and clever. the Italians loved him because he was clean cut, wholesome and... Um, he provided could marry family, one of the daughters. family entertainment, could could marry one of the daughters, but he always had an Italian band with him. Oh. And I actually tell the story about a band called Select who did all the Italian circuits ah. as far as those those clubs were concerned. And, um, you know, you know uh, the, the guy from Select, uh, his name was Tony Romano, he tells me the story about the time that, that Daryl hooked, hooked Select up with John and said, yeah, we're going to do, you know, five or six shows around all the Italian circuits around Melbourne, learn John's songs and um, John will come over and see you. So, of course, he tells this wonderful story about John rocking up to this place in Brunswick to have a have a uh, rehearsal and his mother had taken the plastic off, off the uh, of off the couches and off the off the very expensive lounge suite put the best coffee on but she'd also told all the signoras in the in the street oh, that came. John Johnny Farnham was coming to to have a rehearsal and everyone's like no bullshit they're not the, the guy off at the TV no no anyway sure enough a Johnny, thousand grandmas turned a, up a thousand grandmas and their kids you know when the silver top taxi rocks off and they ended up rehearsing in the bedroom that the two boys shared that's hilarious there's nowhere else to and they had amps and uh, leads everywhere all over the beds and um and they they told John they could read sheet music they couldn't they'd gone to the local shop and purchased that's all hilarious. the records learnt them by ear 
year and, um, yeah, did several shows with John. But interestingly enough, he was going to record Raindrops in Italian, but for some reason it well, never well, eventuated. Back in those days, a lot of artists would record versions of their songs in Italian. People Elvis used to record in other languages. Did you know that? I wasn't aware of that. Johnny Cash. There's a version of Ring of Fire in Italian. Ma yeah, ma yeah. Seriously, <laughs> so so it would it would happen quite a bit, but um, so then you know, in terms of my music education, dinner dances were one thing, but then we'd inevitably end up at someone's place after a dinner dance. One of one of the one of the aunties or one of the uncles, and and they continue eating, continue drinking, continue playing cards, and the mums, you know, the dads in one room playing cards, and the mums in the kitchen making, you know last minute, you know, snacks at midnight and we'd play music and we'd hear, again, Elvis, you know, Johnny Cash. Um, my mum would like um, Patsy Cline, believe it or not, and I'd go, what, do you, what did you find out about this stuff? I said, well, we, you know, we had record plays too when we were growing up. So my education came from those late night, you know, snack mm. parties with, with, with our mums mm. primarily you remember anything like that in your life? I remember lots of Demis Roussos being played in my house, lots of Nana Mascori. Why, why, why? My did... mother loved Demis Roussos, in my Greek. friend The Wind. In yes, Greek. in Greek, in, a, in English. Uh, yeah, Nana Mascori. There was lots of ABBA because I was a huge ABBA fan. But as far as my parents' records were concerned, it was all ethnic, yeah. It mm. was all – do you remember that song, Miscapi la pipi, Miscapi la pipi, Miscapi la pipi. I don't know why, but that was like – a constant in our house, Joe Dolce. When Do- Joe Dolce Shut went to number face. one with Shut Up Your Face, my my parents couldn't stop raving about it. They I thought remember, it was the best thing ever. I remember Pupo, gelato e cioccolato. Gelato e cioccolato, <laughs> dolce un po' salato. Do, remember that? That rings a bell. Every Italian home had that song. <laughs> and, of course, Umberto Tozzi. Oh, Umberto Ti Tozzi. Amo. God. Now that which was... Gloria, Laura, Laura Brannigan. Uh, re- recorded later and had a hit. Well, no, um, Umberto also did Gloria. Yeah, he, he wrote Gloria. He wrote Gloria as well. As well. So she, she, she Laura yeah. Brandingham had, had a massive hit. Yeah. his was big too. Mm. Again, another song that was recorded in like five, six different languages. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a German version of, of that too, wow. of Gloria. Umberto Tozzi. Umberto Tozzi. Yes. So, what was it like growing up as an Italian girl? Yeah. And telling your parents or, or making or trying to make your parents understand that you wanted to be part of the music industry or music scene. Because in those times, let me tell you, you know, I had sisters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like frowned upon. You know, my parent, my dad would go, what do you mean you're going to, to see a band? Or, or what do you mean you're going out to you know, some ungodly hour? So I'd get chastised let alone being a girl trying to do the mm-hmm. same thing, going out, seeing bands, being a part of the music industry. Was it mm-hmm. tough for you growing up? Wasn't tough. Or did they they understand? Did they understand it? Because I, I, I met your dad, and he he seemed like a pretty cool, casual <laughs> guy. Dad, dad was pretty cool. Uh, I the reason why I joined the music industry is because I didn't think I could belong to any other industry. Uh, because I used I used to watch Countdown, so I remember going to cousins' houses, the Italian cousins' houses, and we'd be there for dinner. And at six o'clock, the elder cousins would always put Countdown on, and it was this window into a world that I went, I have to belong to that somehow. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I wanted to do it. So I never, there was never, I never asked permission, or I never, you know, it was never a discussion that was had at home from memory. I remember getting my father to drive me to Triple R so that I could do graveyard shifts. He would 
drop me off at midnight and pick me up wow. at 7am in the morning or give me money for a cab to get home because uh, I just said that I really wanted to get into radio and I think radio was... Well, it's a safe environment too, right? Safe environment. Yeah. yeah. So he was very encouraging as far as driving me everywhere and getting me where I needed to go. I mean, there were all tussles when I was a teenager yeah, about what I was wearing because we were in the height of grunge and I was wearing the rip stockings and the Doc <laughs> Martens and I had green hair. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and was going out till all hours. I, I do know I was going to the tote underage. But I don't think they really fully understood what I did until recovery came along. And, and they I, saw you on TV. And they saw me on TV. Yeah. And then suddenly they could make sense of what I was doing. You know, my dad, um, right up until he passed away, four, uh, yeah, four years ago, still would ask me, what do you actually do? <laughs> you know, because at one point he thought that I was the guy who would stuff the CDs in Jiffy bags <laughs> and send them out to the record stores. He thought that was what working for a record company meant. So he literally he'd think, so how oh. many CDs did you put in the bags today? And, oh. And I was going, Dad, I don't do that, mm. you know. They, just, they didn't get it. You know, my parents from a different era to, mm. to, to your parents. Mm. But it took a while for, you know, um, for them to understand exactly when what did I did. When did they understand? When was that light bulb moment? Well, my dad probably never. Um, my mum knew because she was more musical or musical-minded and she just she knew that I was amounting to something when I got thanked on an Anari Awards Oh. You know, in the um, in the mid nineties, I think we, I think it, I got thanked by um, my first ever Aria Award, which was associated with not mine, um, was I think it was Regurgitator Album mm-hmm. of the Year, and they thanked me, and she heard my name on the TV, and she, and at the time she taped it to oh. play back to me and play back to all the comadres and all the aunties <laughs> and uncles, going, ah, that's my son. But they, they yeah, the parents, you know, coming from a migrant, they never a migrant household, they never really understood fully no. what we did. No. Encouraged encouraged us yeah. and, and were happy that we had you know, they, they knew that we we're making, you know, earning good money from it and stuff, but they never really quite grasped it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and I have the Herald Sun to thank because there was an article about me <laughs> joining Triple J at one point and then Dad read the Herald Sun religiously after dinner with a cup of tea yes. on the couch and then you're in again, there. you know, if you're in there, they can, it. they can say, okay, I get it now. But he would also go and play golf and a lot of the kids used to say, oh, Gazzo, are you related to Jane? And he'd say, that's my daughter. And suddenly he'd get cred points. So I think he really loved that. Oh, yeah, absolutely he would have. So let's talk about Melbourne. What makes Melbourne the city and our music scene so different, so unique? Because I think it is. And we had this conversation with, with Bruce Milne and Mary Milakos in the previous um, session. What makes us different? Because we are proudly. I say that proudly and, and I say that um, I honestly think that, you know, compared to other cities around the world, let alone you know, Australian cities, there's something different about Melbourne. What is it? I put it down primarily to the strength of community radio in this city mm. and it's a city that embraces arts and culture like no other city in Australia. Is that what you'd say? Yeah, I, th- I yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's um, and Bruce touched on it too. The weather that definitely <laughs> helps. That you know, definitely helps. Yeah, we're, we're indoor creatures, and we and we, we don't mind being indoors. I think um, our mentality. We don't mind travelling, Melbournians. You know, if you're into music and you're into particular artists, you'll go anywhere to see that. You know, like you can go. From, when I was living in Reservoir, I would. I didn't mind going to Frankston. 
to see a band. I'm serious. Yeah, right. Whatever way possible, train, yeah. bus, planes, trains, automobiles. We, we travel. Unlike when I was living in Sydney, I felt that the Sydney was a lot more fragmented. Oh, I felt that if too. I lived you, there for eight years. If you I lived in that. Bondi, you stayed in Bondi. You know, you didn't go anywhere. You know, if yeah. you lived on the North Shore, you wanted to see it, you know, you waited for the band to come to the DYRSL or you didn't really venture out. Melbourne, Melbournians, we've, we you know, have have car, have bus or have tram, we'll travel. Yeah, and you will generally find people that want to join you. Yeah. So car sharing to go and see gigs. I remember going up to Mount Buller one night. There you go. Driving there and driving back. For, for a show. For a show. There you go. Yeah. So I rest my case. So, so yeah, I think a combination of climate, um, just, just temperament. We're, we're, I just think we're, we're built differently down here. Do you think the laneways have something to do with it? Those little laneways where so many bands started off in those tiny little bars off, or, or is that is that indicative of the culture of of Melbourne that we can have these little secret, secret yeah. places? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that has something to do with it too. I, I just think you know, like growing up in this city, I. I, there was a romantic, this romantic thing about Melbourne where you know, you want to dis, you, you've discovered things, mm. whether it was a you know a cool little bar in a laneway or mm. or your favourite band playing. We just, I don't know. We we just we're built differently. We're we're yeah. programmed differently to Sydney, yeah. and I think it's a lot to do. We're we're, we're not as um, Sydney's beach based. It's a beach. You know what I mean. Melbourne's more urban. We are the New York to Sydney's LA. A hundred percent. Hundred percent, and I've always, I've always felt that, and I think it's, it, it shows, in the, um, in the, the, in, in the, in the scene, in the so many different kinds of music being. Well, historically, always look at all the bands that have come from Melbourne. Well, tell me, yeah, who are your favourite bands growing up? You know, what, what shaped you? What shaped your music taste? Because I can, you know, I can reel off a couple of acts that shaped mine when I was growing up. You know, bands like the Models. You know, I've seen the Models for the first time. Hunters and Collectors. Mm. They just reek of Melbourne. Mm. You know, those two bands in particular um, as I was growing up. And I'm talking pre-Triple M, pre-Commercial Airplay days when they, were, when they play, you know, grungy little venues and um, we're talking, you know, I remember going to the Armadale Hotel. Coming from Reservoir, that was like going to another city. Mm. From, from Reservoir to Armadale to see the Hunters and Collectors who were just like this 13, 14-piece collective. They had a monkey. They had, they had, a, they had a ream um, heater on stage and they were playing it with a monkey wrench and I just thought it was the, like the Ann's <laughs> Pants at the time. So, yeah. Uh, see, uh, for me it was about the venues that I frequented rather go. than the bands. So in the early 90s the Punters Club was my second home. So it didn't matter what night of the week I was there. I was going to see a band. And remember, entry was $2, $2 to go and $2. see three bands usually. And I just lived there. So I saw everybody that was coming through. I saw Frente, Talot, Talot, Things of Stone and Wood, oh Greenhouse, I, the, the Mavises, the Fat Thing, the Dead Salesman. So... It seemed to be the melting pot, the place where bands got their start and, of course, you would run across the road to the Evelyn, Evelyn certainly yeah. when Mary was booking it as well. So I remember just playing tram tram track tag. You would basically <laughs> be fighting the trams and the cars on Brunswick Street going from one end of the road to the other end of yeah. the road and then sometimes you'd go down to the tote as well. The tote it and, was the, and the, a Rob, little and triangle the Rob Roy. And the, the Rob, Rob Roy. Rob Roy. Mm. So there was... 
the, uh, Brunswick Street was my mecca, was my haven, and of course Triple R was there where I got my start in radio. Around the corner, yeah. Around the corner. Mm. So for for me, Fitzroy signified everything. That's where I met Dylan Lewis pre recovery days. He sh- had a share house just off Brunswick Street on um, Kerr Street with his band, the Brown Hornet, and I met all those guys. So we had actually met each other before we started working together. But I just remember it was creative, and. Rents were cheap, which is really important if you're going to have a scene somewhere. You need artists. You, you need you need uh, poor students in order to kind of kickstart the creativity of that scene. Mm. So for me, less about bands but more about the places and the Punners Club was instrumental in that for me and then the Empress Hotel in North Fitzroy. Which Mary mentioned earlier too. Yeah, it was run by this wonderful woman called Sandra and she she had Bernadette Ryan uh, oh, booking the place. Yeah. Bernadette was the Mavis manager, Mavis's manager for a while. She would go on to look after, I think, the Avalanches, Avalanches for yeah. a bit. Yeah. yeah, but she just booked... All the weird and wonderful bands. I remember seeing the first Augie March um, show there, for for example. Um, I just loved being part of the music scene and going to pubs and just seeing whatever was there. I I would live my life via the gig guide. It was my Bible. Yeah, Bruce and Mary were talking about the importance of community, you know, in music and Fitzroy was. Mm. In the same way St Kilda was, mm. in the same way South Yarra was, you know, we had different communities, you know. in, You know, Mary equates uh, Southside with electronic music, for example, and Northside more with, you know, rock and roll, guitar music. Nothing much has changed, I think. I think it's still pretty <laughs> similar. And then St Kilda was a different, its own beast. When I was living in St Kilda in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, we had the ESPY, the mm-hmm. Prince of Wales, which were incredible venues. And you see so much great band. But there was another scene altogether. But nonetheless, they're all different communities. Mm. And sometimes they would come together, e.g. the Big Day Out, <laughs> where Viv, Viv Lees and Ken West were smart enough to go, why don't we bring all these communities in together and have a boiler room for the dance kids and you know, the rock and roll on the main stage. It was it was fantastic. And, and that's what Melbourne reminds me of, all these great communities that every now and then come together to form, you know, one big party, I think. What are your fondest memories of, 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 the, of that period when you're going to the Punners Club? Because it was – I remember the Punners Club and I remember that whole era being so instrumental um, in shaping the music industry, not just in Melbourne but in Australia. I remember feeling – like I was a valid member of the community because I had a radio show on at Triple R. So I would be going to these places and watching these bands in order to, A, get an interview for my show on the Sunday or get a new CD to, to plug and play. I loved promoting my mates or I loved promoting bands that I was so passionate about. And it's funny, I... I still think of myself as that 14-year-old, and I say 14-year-old because that's when music really stirred me, but I tend to imbibe or view live music as I would a fo- as, a, as a 14-year-old. Does it move me? Does it, does it, do, do the lyrics shock me? Do the lyrics make me feel something? Um, am I moved by the people on stage? So I've always carried that that real kind of teenage fascination about uh, when I see new music, how how I'm struck by it. But that sense of community ultimately and what are my fun, fondest memories? Um, oh, Surely there must be a performance or a band that sums yeah, up that period it, for you. seeing UMI yeah. at the Punters Club oh, wow. when nobody knew who they were 
and I had my one and only, and I, it's never been repeated, but I had like a really spiritual moment, which yeah. sounds bizarre. No, but no, no, I, I was so moved by the music. There was no, no, nothing, um, no drugs involved. <laughs> it was literally, I was transported to another place and it was, it was, it was otherworldly. It's, I've never had that experience since. But also when there was a buzz on a band, being part of that yeah. buzz and just being squished to high heaven, but there was no health and safety regs then, but it was so much fun going to those tote shows where you would hear that Evan Dando was going to do a secret show and sure enough there he was, he rocked up and you were part of those secret shows mm. because we didn't have mobile phones so we didn't That's know what right. was going on. But I remember I remember even being in the in a band myself and Wally I Meany. saw that video, by the way, the other night. You, you posted <laughs> you posted. I went, oh, my God, I forgot about that T-shirt song. <laughs> I Rub remember her. we were doing a CD launch and Wally, some, Pearl Jam were in town at the time mm. and Wally Meany started this rumour that Eddie Vedder and co were going to be rocking up to our CD launch <laughs> yeah. at the Evelyn. Well, we had lines going right down to the end of Brunswick oh, Street. You know, we sold out the Evelyn. I think we actually, um, you know, made a new record for, for the for the amount of people that we had that night. And, of course, Eddie Vedder was Didn't surprisingly a no-show. But what a what a wonderful moment to remember. I, I love that era of music. And I remember uh, the Punters Club, I, I used to go there quite a bit too. I remember seeing, um, and, I, and I passed on it actually, John Butler. Oh. with about 25 people and I thought it's kind of be weird. I thought here's this kind of – here's this dude from Perth with an American accent playing this – and I wasn't a massive fan of Roots music but I could see how good he was. But, you know, I, I remember leaving there going, no, I'm going to pass on it. And Do you regret that? Yes and no. I mean I love John as an artist. I love John as a person. He's a lovely, lovely chap. Yeah, I mean there's yes and no. Yes, okay. yes, because it, it would have um, – Help my credentials as an A&R person, but no. Not that you needed them. No, <laughs> not, no, but no in the sense that, you know, he was always going to be fiercely independent and who was I to get in the way? So, you know. You have been asking a lot of your guests on Vinyl Tap about the ones that got away. Who were the ones that got away for you that you still regret? Um, I have to admit that Silverchair, ah. I kind of looked at it and went, these guys are too young. You know, and at the time the, we used to call them, the, the industry had a nickname for Nirvana them. Nirvana and Pyjamas. Nirvana and Pyjamas. And um, I, I didn't see what, you know, people like John Watson who ended up, you know, managing them saw. Um, I just thought they were a, a grunge ripoff, you know, and I was like, why like, why are kids going to want that when we've got Nirvana and we've got Soundgarden? But lo and behold, mm. they just they just. Is that up. your biggest regret? No, I wouldn't say regret, but there's one that got certainly because I it was you know, there for you if you wanted it. Yeah, yeah, and then and then before you knew it, blinking, you know, there was everyone was involved, mm. and you know, I could have got in there early. Um, the other one which I really wanted to work with was Jet. Ah, you know, um, I actually sent the demo, um, the early Jet demos to a good friend of mine, Lee Lust, from a great rock and roll name, by the way. Yeah, for an A and R person especially. Um, Atlantic Records, and I said, "This is this band is incredible." Um, unbeknownst to me, though, um, when they played their debut show, I sent my A and R team down. I was away; I was overseas. I said, "Go and check out this band. These demos are incredible." They came back and reported that they, that we we had passed. 
Mm. With, and so I hadn't seen the band. So when I went to meet them, I said, well, you guys, Festival Mushroom, you guys have passed. And I went, oh, my God. So my, my team had passed on Jet wow. before I had a chance to. So that one got away. But in the, in the end, just back to Lee Lust, I sent the demos to Lee Lust Atlantic. He ended up signing them. So, so I thought that would hold me in good stead. Yeah. You know, but, you know, in the end they had separate deals and separate territories. Yeah. Interestingly, we were talking about the importance of pubs because the Duke of Windsor Hotel in Paran was instrumental in breaking jet. Yeah. They had a residency there and they just kept filling up, filling up, filling up every week. Again, talking about that sense of community break, you know, those pubs being instrumental. So important. Well, that that pub was was the rock and roll pub at that mm. time. You know, it wasn't just them. It was a whole there was a whole plethora of bands coming out of there. But yeah, you're right. That's so important to their formation, like part of their success absolutely, story. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's quite a few places like that in Melbourne where you know you you equate say the Esplanade yeah. with rock and roll as yeah. well. A lot of yeah. bands come out of there, and the Punters Club similarly. You know, like yeah. the bands like Frente, Frente got yeah. signed out of there. Um, who else from that era? Things of Stone and Wood, yeah. right? Who got yeah. signed to Sony? Frente yeah. got signed to, to Mushroom. Yeah, to or, lot to lot. They lived upstairs at Sunners. They were for a very short time. Uh, they got signed by a major, and then I think it all went horribly wrong. Uh, EMI, it was after the girlfriend song. Oh yeah, oh, my God! <laughs> so we talked about the Punters Club. Any other venues in Melbourne that that spring to mind that that you know had an impact on you? Oh, the Tote, without a doubt, so, and the so fact that Punters Tote. Yeah, the Evelyn, the Empress. Mm. They were probably my, but then again, the Gershwin room was so important as yeah. well, and the art house that is sadly no longer. Remember the Royal Artillery, the oh, art house in, in down here West, off, was the, it off Elizabeth Street, West yeah. Melbourne. I've got a funny story about the Royal Artillery. Tell me. You want, you want to hear this? Yeah. I was um, when I was at Impress and uh, selling advertising. They were one of my best customers because John Hall Kenny, his name was. Never forget, he'd come in on a Monday with cash mm. and go, "I want to book." The next six weeks of advertising, and he'd take out a half page every you know, every every six weeks. He'd come in, and Andrew Watt, the editor mm. and publisher, loved him because he paid cash, and it was good for me because I got a commission. And I remember saying to John once, "Hey, you're such a good customer. I want to come in and do a review for you, one of your bands, or even your your, your dinner service because you've been so good to us." And he goes, "Oh no no no, it's okay. We don't need it. You know, we're we're, we're fine. Like like we're happy just to run the ads." And I thought that's a bit weird. Anyway. I was at a gig one night at Festival Hall and I thought on the way home I go, I'm going to drop into the Royal Artillery and see what's going on and, and surprise John, John Hall Kenny, the owner, and maybe do a, you know, a surprise review for him. Anyway, I get there and the windows were blacked out, right, and I thought what's going on here, right, and I thought I'll go in through the side entrance. I walk in. It was a hardcore neo-Nazi venue and I walk in, think about that for one second, this, this Italian guy with long hair and a goatee, brown skin walks in, and I see John in the corner of my eye oh. and I grab his attention and he says to me, he made his hand gesture, get out of here now. You know, I could see him mouthing, you know, I couldn't hear him because it's on the other side yeah. of the bar. Yeah. But he get out. And I just literally turned around because the death stares I got. Oh were walking in, so I walked out. So that's a funny story. About so that. this is pre the bands then, or hope, this was it? yeah, this was kind of like what era are, are you talking about? Because this is like 1988. Oh 89. yeah, no, 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 uh, 94. I'm talking. We was I mean, nine, maybe even 93, 92. So but... unbeknownst to me, it was it was a hardcore neo-Nazi <laughs> punk punk venue. And the reason why John Hall Kenny didn't want me to come down and do a review is because he thought. I'd get my head kicked in. <laughs> but, I, but, yeah, that's a funny story about that venue. Whoa. 
Yeah. And then Southside, did you have any affinity with Southside venues Not besides the Gershwin? Not so much. The Gershwin Revolver, room, yes. for example? Yeah, Revolver, my goodness. I played pool with Sean Kelly at Revolver one night. Models Sean Kelly? Models Sean Kelly. I thought all my dream, teenage dreams had come come true that night. Mm. And I used to get, I mean, when I was on recovery, I used to go there because they would really look after us. I remember going there with John Safran and we got papped. <laughs> we got papped the next day in the Herald Sun. There's a picture of us both. <laughs> coming, out of, coming out of there yeah, at yeah. some ungodly hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of yeah, I mean, yeah, I did all of that. I did all of that. But I was also working very hard. I was working six days a week at that point, so I don't remember a lot. <laughs> and that was your release going to Revolver. It's a bit of a blur, Michael. What about events in Melbourne? Like Big when day I out. when I was growing up, but even even back before then, I remember going to Thank God It's Friday, which was at the Mo Music Bowl, and I think Gadinsky used to put them on, and they they put on like 10, 12 acts mm. when school finished at the end of the year. And it was Uncanny X-Men, it was the models, it was, it was, that was a lot of fun. One of my first shows was at VFL Park mm, with who was that? Painters and Dockers. At VFL Park? And Paul Kelly, yes. At VFL Park. And I've told this story to Paulie Stewart of Painters and Dockers, but basically they had been on a current affair that week uh, because they were, they were called, like, they were called Satanists by, they were denounced by the church as Satanists, Painters and Dockers, right? Because of Die Yuppie Die. Die Yuppie Die and all their all, other songs. Yeah, some great. some pastor had denounced them as Satanists. So when I told my father I was going to see Painters, Painters and, Dockers and Dockers and Paul Kelly at, at, um, at, it was VFL Park. It definitely was, was. It was a 85, 86 because Paul Kelly was showcasing Under the Sun at the time. I know I know it was songs from Under the Sun. So my father absolutely screamed Blue Murder and said, you're not going to that concert. And we tussled over that for a long time because he'd seen, seen the um I'm intrigued by that concert. So what was that? Who put that on? Because I, Paul Kelly and I'm Pain having and a Dockers, feeling it was Coca-Cola. And, and was it a big... A big crowd or? Massive. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. That's, that, where was I? That escaped me. I think Geisha were on the bill. Remember Geisha. Geisha? Oh, my God. Kabuki knows what I want. Geisha. Geisha. I remember Geisha. Chris Doheny was yes. the singer's name. And he would go on to create some really memorable football, uh, the football, one of the footy show anthems. More than the game. More on than the, On the, on the yeah, footy show, yeah. the Channel 9 footy show. Yeah, I, I don't remember that, 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 that era at all, actually. I mean, VFL Park. I remember seeing Bowie at VFL Park and Kiss at VFL Park. Serious Moonlight Tour? Yeah. The models were supporting. They were. Mm. I remember that, that. It was the day before my English exam and I was like, I've got to, I've got to go. I've got to go. <laughs> my parents, I, I, I delighted my parents. And so I wasn't, I wasn't going to go, but I did go. Um, let's talk about broadcasting because you've got a very um, solid foundation in broadcasting. You've been a broadcaster for, what, 25 years? Not showing your age again, Jane? No, more than that, but let's not go there. But how important is broadcasting in Melbourne, music well, broadcasting? Well, I cannot stress the importance of community radio in this city. Yeah, I let's think, talk about as, as I said earlier, mm. it, it has been part of Melbourne's success story, I think, in a sense, that we've had this really strong arts and culture foundation that's uh, of broadcasting. You know, you look anywhere along a Melbourne street, you'll see a car with a PBS sticker or a Triple, Triple R, R sticker. sticker. Yeah, you do. And it's still, it's still the, the first port of call for any unsigned band. 
to, to, to showcase their wares is on those shows. And I still have shows that I appointment listen on, mm. on both those, on both those stations. I think it's been really, really important. Of course, in the 90s, Triple R was hands down the number one station. Oh, yeah. So big, in fact, and, and so, 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 so loved in this, this town that McDonald's and Coca-Cola were really trying to get to, to buy advertising spots. Is that right? It, it, and it was a constant battle to say no to them. They really wanted part of it. And, you know, all those bands that would make it onto Triple J later or, and or Triple M. Would start M at Triple R for would sure. Would start at yeah. Triple R. And you knew that there was a musical movement happening. You know, those those airwaves would sing. There was, oh, you know, it, I, they broke everybody basically. They did. And I remember Stephen Walker would play you on his Skull Cave show you know, on, on Thursday and Friday afternoons, then there's a good chance your band was going to do well because mm. Stephen had so much cachet with, with, you know, the industry and not just the industry but the public at large. How important how important is Triple R ongoing? And ongoing. And PBS and, and the like, ongoing. I don't know. Do they still have the same impact? As I don't to? know that they yeah. have the same yeah. impact and certainly I know you love to play hypotheticals, Michael yes, I Parisi. Do. I do. I know you love hypotheticals. <laughs> Hypothetically, I, if I were running either of those stations in Melbourne, I would start again. I, you know, I'm not saying what they're doing is not great but... I, you know, I've worked overseas at various radio stations overseas and seen how they work and how they still remain relevant and, oh, my goodness, it would be a wonderful blank canvas to start again and really... What would you do then if you had carte blanche and and take over Triple R, for example? Oh, my goodness. Or let's let's not say Triple R. Let's say you're given a licence to Mm. set up your own thing. Mm. What would you do? Uh, get, Get some of the biggest movers and shakers to host radio shows for a start. I'd really bring, um, I don't think, I don't think any radio station here, music, music based radio station um, employs or utilises uh, texting and, and phone calls enough and, and really hears the music community yep. on the station. So I would really reflect that. Um, I would, I would get rid of this um, kind of, uh, I don't know, this, so some some shows are just so way up their own ass. They're not funny <laughs> that you can't you can't enjoy them because they're just they're just too too far gone. What do you mean by that? Oh, you know you, you get you get you get the announcer that's you know talking about some 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 artist that's you know how can I put this in a in a nice way. Uh, uh, it's elitist. Elitist. Highbrow, thank you. Highbrow. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for yeah. this early Friday morning. Elitist and highbrow. I don't give a shit if this guy played on 55 other records that <laughs> no one's ever heard of and never will again. Just reflect to me what's going on in the pubs and clubs and cafes of Melbourne. That's what I want to hear. What are people listening to? What are people really listening, listening to? to? But really reflect the city and I'm not sure when I hear uh, so, some, some shows and announcers do it really well and they're the ones I listen to, but every good radio station has to start with a strong breakfast show regardless. I don't care who you are. And I can't say with hand on heart that those breakfast shows are, are really strong enough at the moment because that's that's by which you build the rest of your program grid on. So essentially you're saying these shows aren't reflecting Aren't reflecting the real as Melbourne. much as they used to because right. – 
all of those um, DJs back in the 90s in at Triple R, for instance, were at every single gig you yeah, went I to. Remember. You 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 couldn't move for the sea of Triple R announcers, Triple R uh, volunteers, yep. people that worked in the office. It was a real gang mentality. And some of those incredible transmitter gigs that we did, the Cosmic oh, Psychos and gigs. Tism and uh, Died Pretty and uh, the Beasts of Bourbon and then the Cruel I mean, just... Just a wonderful time. It really felt like you were part of a community. Let's let's stay on the broadcasting theme. So from Triple R, you went to Triple J. Mm. Um, has that lost its impact too? Because there's an argument, you know, around town now suggesting that it's not what it used to be. And and I'm not expecting these institutions to you know living to live in the past. That said, what have Triple J become? Do you think? Compared to when you when you were there, because I I know there's been a difference, and yeah. I and we can talk about this for the next three hours yeah. and debate and it. And we did touch upon it in our last we podcast. We did, but this is worth talking about for people who didn't hear you know, <laughs> the, your podcast and may go back to it okay. after they hear you talk about this now. <sighs> What's Triple J? I just feel because it has. I feel it has become untouchable. That nobody can go near it, and I really feel that, and I feel sad about that as a former Triple J member of staff, I mean, they've shut the door firmly on me um, and I don't mean like I, I can't get near Double J. Um, I can't Which get near surprising. it. Yeah, they. Um, I, I, had a, I had a dear friend that was working at Double J and she mentioned my name to them and they said, oh, no, Jane won't fit Double J. And I'm thinking in what way, shape or form would I not fit Double J having worked at BBC candidate. Six Music and... And this is the feedback I received. Now, this is coming from a dear friend that worked there, so it's not come from Double J themselves. So uh, Double Double J are welcome to get in touch with me and and and, <laughs> and tell me otherwise. But you know, I run a I run a '90s Facebook group. I co-run it with a wonderful man called Scott Thurling. I've written about the '90s music scene. I'm I'm a former BBC Six Music person. I was on Recovery with Dylan. Dylan's on on um, Double J, but I I'm I can't go near there for whatever mm. reason. And considering I spoke in. De- in depth about, yeah, you, did. you know, how they shut the door on me when I got really, really ill mm. um, and didn't allow me back. I just, I just, so I, I find it a little bit, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that I, I do criticise the playlist because I don't think, again, I don't think it's reflecting the Australian music scene accurately, but everyone's got an opinion about that. My opinion isn't necessarily right, but I think there's so much more that they could be doing, but they're not open open to hearing about what they could mm. be doing because they believe that they are doing right or they're 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 focusing on their remit, which is to do X, Y, and Z, and they don't really want to know about ABC. I don't know, but I, I find it's a closed shop, and I I despair about that. One of the major criticisms of 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 that whole network is the fact that people think they're maybe a tad too Sydney centric, which I can understand. Mm. Do you feel that way when you listen to it? I don't feel that. I just feel that it doesn't represent me. Mm. It just doesn't play the music I want to hear. And so I have it on in the background and there's about a half a dozen songs I like and the rest I think, why are they playing this? Like, hey, why don't they have a breakfast show that apparently it costs? Well, 
I would start with a breakfast show first and foremost. Again, build the rest of the the, mm. the channel on that, and then they have these. You know, they'll put they'll put someone on at 10, 10 a.m. till till midday, and then it's then it's back, back wall wall to wall wallpaper music. And some of it you're just going, well, this has probably been programmed three weeks ago. Mm. No, it's not reflecting. Hey, it's a sunny day outside. It'd be nice to hear some really <laughs> sunny happy tunes. Or hey, such and such has just died. How about half an hour's worth of this music? You know, mm. killing. Jokes Geordie died during the week. I didn't hear one Killing Joke song on Double J. Why isn't it reflecting what's going on musically in in the world right now? The music that we grew up with. I mean, I don't know. We I get, I get really a, passionate I about do. it, and see. I'm going to get hate mail. So fuck That's it. Right. I don't care. I feel passionately about this. It's good to hear, Jane. Nothing's changed <laughs> in terms of your passion. Let's bring it back to Melbourne. So. Sally Cap was meant to be on the show this morning and I asked the same question of Bruce and uh, and Mary earlier about Melbourne in general and how you feel we're going as a as a as a scene, as an industry. Anything you change, anything you want to see? There's so much I'd change Let's and go. I'm not allowed to say on no, radio. Why not? No, why no, no. Not? I I won't say because why? I would oh look, I just because because they're criticisms of people doing their jobs don't and talk, I don't I don't to, we don't have to talk about people we I, talk about I don't situations. want to name names but no, anyway names. I loved Mary's idea of having a Melbourne music shop mm. at the airport mm. to say hey welcome to one of the biggest and best and brightest music cities in the world yeah I love that I love that I love the idea of having plaques on places I actually did um, make inquiries into that uh, pre-COVID about why we couldn't have because I've lived in London and I, I was there the day that the, the Triffords unveiled uh, a plaque on a house where they recorded 16 Lovers Lane and I'm thinking well, why? sorry the go, go between. between sorry yes. uh, yeah, I, I was there for the unveiling. I covered it for Six Music. And I'm thinking, why don't we have that here? Mm. We need to really celebrate our past a little bit better. But as Bruce Milne said, not just the the Nick Caves and, and the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and, and, and those bands that we seem to obviously talk about so much. I want to encompass all sorts of With artists. Johnny Farnham, and Kylie Minogue. I mean, Absolutely. You know, we could go on. Yeah, Tino Arena. Tino Arena, yeah. Uh, Sorrento Moon. Where, where's, can, we, can we have a plaque at the beach where she wrote that, <laughs> for instance? I think we could be doing so much better and we need to do better. We need to really recognize. If we, if we were in America, Melbourne was a city in America, you know, we'd be bells and whistles. This is this is the, the biggest and best music city in, 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 in America. Well, we're not. We're in Australia and we, we tend to dumb it down a bit and mm. I think. Unlike Nashville where I was saying to Bruce and Mary earlier, when you go to Nashville, by the time you get to the baggage carousel coming off the plane, you've seen three three gigs. You know, and and you've Why gone past and you've gone past three record shops. Seriously, Why aren't we doing that? Here? Why well, isn't there a whole rack of Australian music hmm. at the at the airport hmm. for people that want to try? I mean, I put together a '90s compilation, a double yeah. album uh, called "Sound as Ever," and Pat at uh, the uh, record shop down here on on Franklin Street says tourists buy it because it's Australian music. Right. So we're doing well with that. Well, why aren't those kind of compilations available at airports, at airports for tourists? Yeah. We've got the Australian Take Music Vault next door to us, though, yes, haven't we? Yes, we do. You we put, do. Do you help put that together, right? Yes, I'm an ambassador. And for what's the in music what's in there Vault. for people who've never been in there? Okay, so it's a free, free, completely free. Mm. So if you've got a couple of hours spare and you're wandering around in the city, come to the art centre. 
basically everything to do with Australian music that we can fit in that small space there. So, for instance, um, at the moment we've got the Hall of Fame representation, which of course is Jet because they were in, of course. inducted into the Hall of Fame. So there's some old never-before-seen never photos. There's, I think, uh, Cam Ma's guitar that he played Are You Gonna Be My Girl on. There's also some costumes that they've donated, like some of their leather jackets from... Um, from from some of their some of their parts of their career, song lyrics, for example, you can go and watch uh, various interviews uh, with the likes of Kylie and Tina, for example. But there's split ends um, costumes on on display at the moment. Uh, there's also from the Slam Rally. There's lots and lots of photos from the Slam Rally. Again, you know that's that's a real proud moment in Melbourne's live music culture. It's history. Yeah. Um, there's there's a ton of stuff. It's a moving and rotating exhibition, so things change. Uh, at the moment, the heart of the Australian Music Vault um, showcases and celebrates 50 years of mushrooms. So there's a really wonderful uh, kind of immersive display there. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to have been a part of and to remain being a part of. And we're dedicated to collecting a lot of the legacy acts and the interviews so that we have them on file as well. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I've never been. I've got to have you a look. You need to. <laughs> but don't just have a look. Like have really spend look. time yeah, there. Yeah, 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 I will. Really spend time. Now, um, one last thing is we've got, to, we've got to wind up shortly. Bruce and Mary do a bus tour of Melbourne, a music bus I've tour of Melbourne. I've done that Have you done that tour? Yeah. The Magical Mystery Tour. I love that tour. I'd like to hear what you'd do if you're in charge. You were driving the bus and being the conductor. <laughs> Where would you go? Well, I've actually to the tourists, you know, to who's, no one who's ever heard of Melbourne before and and, yeah. and have a love for music. What was your what would your bus tour look like? <laughs> this would be fun. <laughs> we'll finish off on this too. Like a lot of the places I'd want to take people what? don't exist anymore. Well, pretend they exist. Well, I go down Brunswick Street. Right, let's stop. Well, they do exist. Brunswick Street yeah, exists. Yeah, well, of course, Brunswick. But I'm talking punters. The punters Club. doesn't. But you can say yeah. this was formerly the punters oh, club. This was formerly now the it punters sells club. five dollar pizzas. <laughs> oh no, that's so sad, <laughs> isn't it? That breaks my heart. Uh, the Evelyn, obviously, which is still you know, there. We'd have to point out Mario's Cafe because that's been a cultural hub for Melbourne. I call it the Mario's Green Room. Doesn't matter what time of because day Because you, you the go. musos yeah. always hang it's out. It's the musos, actors and artists yeah. hang out. Yeah, that's a good one to point out. Then I go further up to the Rob Roy, now the Workers, the Workers Club, Club. Uh, and then do a leftage down Gertrude Street oh, and yeah. go down leftage down uh, Smith. Smith and point out Yaya's. Yep. You should all point out, and it's hard to spot, but Bongo Star. Bongo Starkey from Skyhooks had a fantastic venue called the Jump Club in the 80s. Okay. Which is halfway down Smith Street okay. where the Coles is now. Oh. And that was incredible. Is that what became the club in Collingwood? That's correct. Yeah, it right. It was the club in Collingwood. Before that it was a Jump Club but that, yeah. was, a, that was a place. Uh, anyway, you can so point turned, out Northside Records as well yep. uh, on Gertrude before you go into Smith Street. Yep. Uh, then head to the Tote, of course, which we've – I mean that's a down story to in Wellington. itself. Yep. That's a story in itself the man that we've managed to save it a second time and mm. they're just – I went there for the first time since it got bought by the new owners the guys from the Last Chance Saloon, freaking heaving at uh, 1 o'clock on a Sunday morning, like Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday morning, night, yeah. just heaving full of young people. It gave me hope again. I'm so proud of what <laughs> they're doing. Uh, so, yeah, that would be on it. And then, oh, I'd ha you'd have to make some kind of detour past um, the gem. I love the gem. Oh, the gem. For country and for Western country and music. Western and, barbe and barbecue. And barbecue. Yeah. 
<sighs> Where would we go then, Where Michael? Where would you go? Like, just, you're very, you're very north side. Yeah, you're very I, biased, I, aren't you? I love north. You go down. I guess you'd go down to Brunswick, wouldn't you? Yeah. Knowing knowing Jane Gaza, you'd go to Brunswick. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't go left and get us in Kilda, would you? Via Franco Cozzo, which is still there. <laughs> Comprare da Franco Cozzo. Um, where would you end? I'd probably end it with um, a nice a nice beer at the Retreat Hotel. Oh yeah, love the Retreat. Yeah, and grab yourself some some food. That's so Jane Gaza. So you're so Northside, aren't you? You're so you say that as if it's a crime. It's a Michael. good thing. It's a good thing. I'm, I'm Northside too. What would you too. do? Come on. I'd do something similar actually. Oh, all right. Okay. Although, but I but I would go I would go to Downson Kildaway because I, I I live there and I, I spend a lot of time at you know at the SB and Prince of Wales. Yeah. Um, I'd go down. God, I'd go down. I'd go to, I'd go to South Yarra because I used to go clubbing as well. Because yeah. I because I had my rock and roll side and also had my sort of like fun, you know, club side as well. Because I had friends in that scene and friends in that scene, and I could actually traverse between both, which was fun. So a place like Revolver, yeah. you know, one six one, which you know when it first started was a rural hang. So I, I'd go everywhere actually, not just North Side, you know. I think it'd be a great bus tour if we've joined forces. It'd be a long bus tour, I'm telling you. Yeah, I know. See, Melbourne traffic. Melbourne traffic. Anyway, Jane, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us on Vinyl Tap this morning. Thanks this is the second for time me on the again, show. Michael, yeah. We're going to put this live on Monday. We're going to have up on right. up on the podcast on Monday through um, through Spotify, of course, and and other um, DSPs. But thanks again. You've become a stalwart. Anything else you, you want to finish with? Before we, are we done? Uh, we're done. We're All right. Done. Thanks. Thanks, CJ. You've been listening to Vinyl Taps Inside the Music Industry, the podcast with Michael Parisi. If you enjoyed that episode, please go to my website for more information about any of my guests, www.vinyltappodcast.com, all one word, of course, and we'll see you on next week's instalment.